Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Before we do that, I want to share some answered prayer. Last year, we prayed for Annie Nichols. She had a tragic accident, and uh, she's in our service today. Wave your hand, Annie. We won't make you stand up or come up here. Hey, Annie. So, answered prayer, blessing from God. Annie, we love you. And right across from you is Hallett World, who had an accident years ago, weren't sure she was going to live. She's lived, defied all the odds, and she's with us today. Wave your hand, Hallett. So there's answered prayer among us. There's others if we took time to do that. We're going to talk about prayer a little bit this morning. The Apostle Paul gets to the end of Ephesians in chapter 6. Last week we looked at verses 10 through 15. He started off with the word finally. If you're like me when I was some of your age, when the preacher finally said finally, I thought that sounded like good news. He's about to wrap it up. Well, we spent two weeks on finally. We're going to hit the rest of it here uh, today. But I want you to get the finally aspect of it. Paul loved the people of Ephesus. He loved the people of that region of Asia, Asia Minor. And he wrote them a letter. He wrote a lot of letters, but he wrote a letter specifically to the church in Ephesus. And it was kind of like you when you're dropping your kids off at college. And you're thinking, okay, what in the last 18 years have we failed to teach her or him? And you've got to get it all out. Your brain, if you're a parent, kids, you don't understand this, but if you're a parent, you're going, are they really going to make it on their own? That's kind of what the Apostle Paul does here at the end of Ephesians, he has taught them some rich theology in the first three chapters. Incredibly deep, important theology that they were still getting the grasp of. Then he spends chapters 4, 5, and 6 really putting some practical handles and feet on this theology that he's taught them in the first three chapters. And he does it because they're children of God. They're his children in the faith, so to speak. And so he wants them to get it. And this is the passage that we commonly refer to as the the armor of God. And I want to give you a little disclaimer. Sometimes we focus so much on the physical armor, we don't understand what Paul was trying to illustrate. Paul was chained to a Roman soldier as he dictates this letter. Whether this soldier had the shield with him or not, I don't know. But I guarantee you, Paul, if he could look outside, saw Roman soldiers and he saw the belt. He saw their breastplate. He saw their feet shod with shoes that were for the purpose of battle. That's what we looked at last week. But as he looked through each element of that, he said, that's a good illustration. And you and I struggle with that because we don't see people dressed like that anymore. We're going to take up the other three parts of the armor. But the last full disclosure is this. I titled the first part of my message, the first uh, first section a call to battle once you understand there's a battle still going on but the war's already been won jesus christ came and defeated death he paid the penalty for our sin at the cross he rose from the dead the war is over so god's not calling you to the war in fact what we looked at last week was simply this he's just calling you to stand your ground we're camped in enemy territory so we're not giving up any ground we don't have to 
We resist the devil as we looked at last week because of James 4, 7. We, we misquote James 4, 7 a lot. It says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But is that all it says? There's four really important words before that. I about had a wreck riding down Highway 17, one of the campgrounds. They put verses on their banner or on their marquee, and I really appreciate that. But they had James 4, 7, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. I thought, where can I get them to put the other four words up? Because the other four words are this, submit therefore to God. If you hadn't done that, you can't resist the devil. But if you have done that, the devil flees from you. If you're interested in more of that, go to iTunes and listen to last week. But let's get to this week. Verse 16. As Paul is looking at a Roman soldier, he gives us a few more illustrations. In addition to all. Taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness, with, with boldness, the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul picks up with the theme and the message that we looked at last week, and he says, in addition to all that, so he's already talked to him about three parts of the armor, important parts, that they're to put on, they're to be clothed with. Now it's take up. Take up the shield of faith. There were two types of shield in the Roman world. One would be for cavalry, for horseback riders. They would have a shield that looks kind of like the ones they joust with at medieval times. Y'all ever been there? Picture the top of a trash can, maybe, if you hadn't been to medieval times. That isn't the shield he's talking about here. In fact, he uses a different word for this type of shield. This type of shield was literally more like a door. Scholars tell us it was about two and a half feet wide by four and a half feet high. It would fully protect a man standing behind it. And you say, what if he was six feet tall? Nobody was six feet tall back then. I mean, you're talking about Goliath. It gets a little taller than that. But the typical Roman soldier could easily put that and crouch behind it. In fact, scholars tell us that this would have been the front line of defense. And it could spread shoulder to shoulder a mile wide. Now, imagine that if you're the army coming against that. And if you can get that picture in your mind, how intimidating that would be, how about the, in, the picture the enemy gets, the devil, when he sees us with a shield up, and the shield we have up is faith. And Paul goes on to say, the reason we want you to put up, the reason I'm telling you to put up the shield of faith is so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Do, do you understand what faith is? I read an illustration, Josh or John Patton, was translating the Bible for a South Seas island tribe. And they didn't have a word to translate faith. And so he struggled with it until one of the natives ran in and sat down and said, Oh, it feels so good to put my full weight on this chair. And John Patton said, That's it. That's the word I'll use to describe faith. You're putting your full weight on God. And here's where the illustration breaks down. It's a great illustration. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
So the chair illustration works good up to a point. You can all see the chair. I didn't see a single one of you come in and test your chair this morning. But that's more trust. And faith in God is actually a little deeper than that. I see some of you looking around. Did any of you test your chair? Well, let me ask this. Have you ever had a chair that didn't hold you when you sat in it? Okay. (laughs) Have you ever had a chair that wasn't there when you went to sit in it? I shared this a few weeks ago. I had a brother almost five years older than me that loved, you know, you should have known when your older brother said, here, sit here. It took me a while. I'm a little slow, okay? It took me a while to realize if you go to sit down, a chair's not going to be there when you put your weight there. But that's what faith in God is. So Paul is saying, get out. Don't spend the rest of your day thinking about, where am I going to get one of them shields? I need a door. No, it's the shield of faith. That's the shield. Paul said, here's the illustration. When you come to fight the enemy because he's coming after you, if you're not experiencing attacks from the enemy, you're not hitting him head on. It's probably because you're both traveling the same direction. So once you take a stand in Christ, trust me, the battle's still going. Now, we have confidence that the war's over. Jesus has already won that. But we're in a battle. So Paul says, you're able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Apparently in Roman times in battle, they would put bits of cloth on the arrow and dip it in pitch and then light it right before they shot it. And as soon as they shot it, whatever it hit would splatter flames all over several feet and burn whatever it caught on fire. But come back to how does that apply to what Satan does? Satan threw an arrow in the Garden of Eden, shot an arrow. What did he do? He caused Eve to doubt. You remember what he did? Go back to the first few chapters of Genesis. He he approaches the woman and he says, has God said? That's a clue right there. Here's what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to get you to doubt the truth of God. He wants you to doubt the truth of his word. He wants you to doubt the goodness of God. Because ultimately what Satan said is, has God said you shouldn't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Well, did he say that? No. What did God say? And and Eve corrected him. No, he said we can eat from all of the trees of the garden, just the one in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We shouldn't eat of that for we will die. And what does Satan say? You will not die. So Eve had a dilemma. God said it. But here's what Satan's saying. And he's kind of telling me that the reason God doesn't want me to eat of that tree is because as soon as I do, my eyes are going to be open. I'm going to be like God. He's holding out on me. That's the oldest trick in Satan's arsenal of tricks. To get you to think that somehow God's not good. In fact, that's one definition of sin. It's trying to find purpose, meaning in life, happiness apart from God. And Satan's still throwing those. Satan is still shooting those arrows to you when he comes to you and says, who do you think you are? God doesn't love you. And Satan starts reminding you of all the things in your past. And you come to the conclusion, I'm not worthy. Bingo. (laughs) You're right. If you've ever come to the conclusion you're not worthy for God to love you, you are correct. If we were worthy, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. The reason Jesus died on the cross is Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated, proved, showed us his love for us in that while we were sinners, 
Christ died for us. And yet that's still Satan. You're, you're not worthy. I used to play that spiritual comparison game in church. I used to look down the row at church and think, golly, look how tight they squint their eyes when they pray. I'm serious, y'all. When I was a teenager, I thought, man, they must really know God. I can't do that. They looked miserable. And so I thought, they must really know God. The more miserable you look, the more spiritual you are, apparently. Until you read verses like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Those people didn't know God. They had had bad pizza the night before. No, listen. You're not worthy. God loved you when you weren't worthy. He died on the cross to make you worthy. You're not worthy in anything you've done. But when Jesus died on the cross, that was enough. And now we are pronounced right before God. So that's all Paul's saying. If you're going to be in the battle, and you are if you're a Christian, then one of the pieces of armor, one of the things you've got to help on is faith. What is your faith in? When the, when the disciples were in the boat, you remember that, Mark chapter 4? Storm comes up. Jesus finally calms the storm. And he says, where was your faith? I'm convinced they had faith that day. The faith was in the storm. Because what did they say? It's about to kill us. Here's what God's saying. Put your faith in me. If you're a child of God, Paul's already taught us this in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He's taken up residence in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. Satan is no match for God. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So Paul says, take up the shield of faith. The only way to extinguish those darts is to believe God. Then he says, and take the helmet of salvation. He's looking at that Roman helmet. He's thinking, man, number one, that thing looks heavy. Made out of iron or bronze. Probably had sponge in it just to make it bearable. Some of us couldn't have even put it on. Our neck wouldn't have held it up. But it was to protect the head from not the little sword we're going to talk about in a minute, but from the big sword that could have whacked your head off. And so he's saying, take up the helmet of salvation. Salvation means the defender or defense. The root word literally means rescue or safety. In Christ, because of Jesus, you are saved. And you have the assurance of that through God's Word. Some people come to faith in Christ but live the rest of their life just kind of hoping they got it. That's why there's so many verses in the Scripture. John writes one in 1 John chapter 5. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know you have eternal life. Not hope so, think so, 95% chance, not coming down to a coin flip. You can know. So I got that. Don't raise your hand. But have you got the helmet on? That's what's protecting your mind. And I got to tell you, that's the battlefield for Satan. Satan's not going to knock on your door, ring your doorbell, wearing a red suit with a pointy tail and a pitchfork, and say to you, I'm the devil. Can we talk? But you know what he does? He comes to you trying to sow seeds of doubt. What did he do with Jesus? 
Jesus baptized and led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by the devil. We see the big three. But what did Jesus do? When Satan threw the dart, what did Jesus do? According to Scripture. Take up the shield of faith. Take up the helmet of salvation. The last piece of armor. Take up the sword of the Spirit. The word he uses for sword here would have been a 6 to 18 inch knife or dagger. Same word that's used coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter sees the army coming to arrest Jesus and he thinks, oh, I'll try this. He takes the sword of one of the guards and cuts off the servant's ear. I don't know what he was going to think he was doing with the rest of those people with that little dagger. <laughs> Jesus healed the dude's ear. Put your sword up. But now Paul is telling us, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Most scholars, when you study this, are going to tell you this is the only offensive weapon. But i got to tell you, it's both offensive and defensive. Knowing the Word of God allows you to defend the attack, but it also allows you to be proactive in proclaiming the gospel. Here's the question. Do you know the Word of God? When you put on the breastplate of truth, the helmet of salvation, now the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, let me just ask you, do you own a Bible or do you know the Bible? There's a big difference. You can walk into a lot of people's houses that have Bibles. I've, I've seen coffee table Bibles. You ever seen those? When we got married 37 years ago, my wife and I, one of the wedding gifts we got was this huge Bible for your coffee table. The weird thing about it, it was white. The weird thing about it is in the back of the Bible, it had pictures of every United States president. Well, if you're not careful, you're going to kind of thinking, I guess that's the disciples. I don't know, what were they doing in my Bible? But this wasn't the kind of Bible you're going to carry around and actually read. It was supposed to sit on the coffee table. It was a conversation piece. Well, you know what? They have museums for swords. They have arms and armament museums. And some people, that's what their Bible is. It's a relic. It's something for display purposes only. It ain't dangerous on your coffee table. The Bible becomes an offensive weapon when you pick it up and read it and memorize it and know it. So when lies come at you, you know, uh-uh, that's not the truth. That's half the truth, which is a whole lie. But you also are able to take the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, never sinned died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, but didn't stay dead, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Do you know your Bible? I know some of you are scared. It's already after 11 o'clock. Sorry. I don't have the big pulpit up here today. My clock's gone. Well, a kid walked out about three weeks ago. I don't think he's here today, so I'll say that he had his Bible under his arm. He said, good message, preacher, but you went over by nine minutes. 
I thought, nowhere in the bulletin does it say when we end. It just says when we begin. I promise you I'm still going to get you out here to meet, beat all the other churches to Cracker Barrel, okay? The problem is if you had not figured out a lot, people at the beach don't go to church, so they're already at Cracker Barrel. It's better if you wait a little later and battle with the church people. So a call to battle, then a call to prayer. I'll go quicker. Listen, this doesn't even begin a new sentence. This is great about the way Paul writes things. He just has these incredibly long sentences. So coming right on the heels of these six parts of the armor, don't know that you call prayer an armor, but it's part of the battle, people. Paul doesn't associate it with the armament or a piece of arms that he's seen on a Roman soldier, but he says with all prayer. In fact, in this little passage, one verse he says he has four alls. So my question for you today is, are you all in on prayer? With all prayer, those are literally requests. They're more general and inclusive. In fact, it could include just the act of worship. But he then adds another word, and petition. Those are more specific, narrower in scope. This is like a wartime walkie-talkie. This isn't the intercom where you call downstairs for more food. This is, we're in the battle now. So Paul says, in all prayer and petition, Pray at all times. What does that mean? That means, yeah, pray in your prayer closet. Pray in your quiet time. But go throughout the day. If you're walking with God throughout the day, it becomes a natural thing just to talk to Him. God, I've circled the block four times. I can't find a parking place. Could you help here? God, that person over there looks like they need you. Give me an opportunity to speak to them. God, I just got a phone call from somebody that's had bad news. God, would you minister in their lives? Would you comfort them as only you can do? Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. Wake up. We're in the battle. It's not time to take a nap. Same word that when Jesus takes his disciples into the garden, he said, would you stay here and keep awake and pray while I go a little further over? And he kept coming back. They were asleep. That's a message for another time. But pray at all times. Pray with all perseverance, literally persistently. And petition for all the saints. When you become a Christian, you get a new family. That's what's meant by the word saints. We're praying for each other. One of the greatest gifts you can ever give somebody is to pray for them. And one of the greatest gifts they can ever give you is to pray for you. I'm going to get specific with that in a minute. But we pray to the Father. Through Christ the Son, in or by the Spirit. And here's the cool thing about the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we don't even know how to pray. So the, the Spirit takes those groanings that are too deep for words and takes them right to the throne of heaven. And then Paul gets real specific. Finally, I'm almost done. Paul says, pray for me. Pray on my behalf. Now I want you to catch that. This is probably the greatest theologian and the greatest missionary ever in the history of the world. And he's asking for people to pray for him. Does that encourage you? Is it okay if you acknowledge you need prayer too? If the Apostle Paul needs prayer, we need it worse. And he says, pray for me. And, and it amazes me, I've said this before, if you get a letter from me and I'm in prison, the first part of the letter in all caps is going to be, Hey, I'm in prison. 
could you get me out? Paul didn't ask for that. What does Paul ask for? Help me be a better witness. He's chained to a Roman guard, which I think is pretty incredible. So this Roman guard, who's the captive here? <laughs> is it Paul? Or is it the guard that's having to hear the gospel constantly as he's dictating letters to his scribe that's writing this down? Pray for me that the opening of my mouth I would make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul recognized he had been given grace by God to get it. He understood the gospel and he saw people around him who desperately needed it and he simply said, I can't do this on my own. Pray that God would open my mouth and give me boldness. Let me close with this. I had a bunch of these. I'm going to narrow the field. Just a few practical things about prayer, and we're done. First is this. Pray specifically. Be careful that you don't just say, bless Steve. That's not specific. It's okay to say that, but as you say bless, be specific about what you're praying. Here's one thing that's good about being specific. It's going to be easier for you to see that answered. If you pray generally, just bless him. How do we know if God answered the prayer or not? Be specific, and it brings more glory to God to answer specific prayers. Write it down. Write down your prayer list. What are you praying for? And revisit that from time to time to say, God, thank you. You, you answered this one right here. And sometimes he answers them not as you expect, so you've got to be have some spiritual glasses on to see how God answered the prayer. Pray in faith. Are you praying prayers that are big enough for God? Pray in faith. Pray in such a way that if God doesn't come through, that prayer can't possibly be answered. Number four, this, this one I, I really struggle with. Fight distractions. And I mean by that, location can matter. You, you, you're really going to need to cut the TV off, maybe the radio off. Maybe go to a private place. But the other thing I struggle, I struggle with is thoughts. So what I started doing is just when a thought comes in my head, maybe it was God trying to talk to me. So write it down. I found that once I write it down, I don't have to keep trying to remember it while I'm praying. I had a seminary professor who said, a dull pencil is better than a sharp mind. Write it down. Don't give up in prayer. Keep praying. If you're struggling to get started in prayer, read the Bible. I don't know if you know it or not, but the first song Joyful Sound did was Psalms 150. It's a worship song. Read some of the songs. Don't worry about eloquence. I think there's some people, I don't know how to pray. I don't know them words. <laughs> and I've heard preachers pray like that. I went and visited this kid in the hospital who had the chicken pox so bad they had to hospitalize him because they were in his eyes. kid had not slept. They finally got him to sleep, and this little meek and mild pastor was in the room, and he said, Let's pray. It was great. He said, Dear God! He started screaming like he had to get this prayer out the next three floors of the hospital. I thought, Hello, dude. The kid just went to sleep. I don't know if part of your prayer is going to be help him to get some rest because you're blowing it. And we start using these and thou's in King James English. If you don't talk like that regularly, why do you talk like that then? Now, now be careful. God ain't your homeboy. Be reverential, respectful, 
but you don't have to worry about knowing preacher words. You don't have to pray in Greek or Hebrew. And then be grateful. Be grateful. Cultivate an attitude of gratitude. God convicted me of this when I was in, in former Soviet Union in the Ukraine, and I heard the prayers of these Ukrainian people, and I asked my interpreter, who's this little 15-year-old kid that I had a problem with, I said, would you tell me what they're praying? Their prayers were 90% of what they said was, God, thank you for everything you've given us. And in my little Western mentality, I thought, you don't have anything. You got nothing. But God said, they got more than you do. They got gratitude. Because even if they don't have the stuff of the world, they have me. And sometimes our prayers look more like a three-year-old begging for something. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And less like a a mature person who just says, God, if you never give me another thing, thank you that you allowed me to know you. Thank you that you've forgiven me. You've saved me. Thank you that you've given me eternity to sing. So let's pray. Bow your heads as we pray. Father, as we get to the end of Ephesians and recognize just some practical thoughts from the Apostle Paul, would you please apply those to our lives? God, it's one thing to come in here and sharpen the tools on a Sunday, but God, tomorrow, may we make sure we're clothed with the armor of God. God, protect our thoughts, protect our speech, protect our natural tendency to retreat. God hasn't asked us to charge, he's asked us to stand firm. So thank you for that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name.